0: So before we move on to the sermon in that part, I'm going to ask you guys to pray for a minute. Um, You can do this out loud, barely, or just in your head. But, But here's the thing. Let me just read something from Psalm 25. It's right in the middle of the Bible. The psalmist here says, in you, Lord, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. But again, that first line, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Here's what I want to invite you to do. We're going to just take two minutes and be quiet here. And I want you to, in those two minutes, identify something that you need to trust God with. Some of you, that's going to be, you mean just one. Um, But identify one thing. And this is something that was probably there when you went to bed last night. It was probably there when you woke up. And if it's not, it's because... You're working really hard not to think about it. But just identify something that you're worried about, that you're nervous about, that you're scared of. And just in the quiet, say it barely out loud or just in your head, Lord, I'm going to trust you with this. Okay? So about two minutes of, of just figuring out what it is and then just quietly reach out to the Lord And and notice in that line there's no, like, qualifications. It's not like, oh, I haven't been here enough to do that. Or if you knew how I spent my week, you wouldn't be telling me this. No, actually, I I am. I don't know how you spent your week. But I am telling you we're all eligible to do this. So all we need is him. So trust him with that one thing. So two minutes, and then then we'll move on to the next thing. Father, we are grateful that you're worth our trust and that you desire our trust. So, Father, receive these things that we've just given to you. And, Father, receive this whole experience, this whole morning as our gift to you. And, Father, take what you do with every gift that we give to you, which is to return it to us multiplied and for even greater joy for us and we pray this in jesus name amen hey so over the last number of weeks we've been talking together under the banner of conversations and really what those are are key questions not questions that we have about god but questions that the lord or jesus has for his people that we find in the bible and what's really been great about this, as, as John's been going through it and as I pick up, pick up the ball today, is just the right question sometimes can really bring everything together. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you're really freaked out? You, you have, you don't even know which question to ask, you're so freaked out. You get two dozen questions, three dozen. What about this? What about this? What about this? And then somebody comes alongside and asks you just the right question and everything kind of falls into place. Well, the Lord does that throughout, and that's been kind of the, the jumping off point for this, this series. The questions we have are important, and they matter, and we really want to be a church here at Living Spring that values people's questions and honors them. You'll never get shamed or be told, oh, that's a bad question, or how could you think that um, here? This is a place where we really honor that. But what we've been focusing on on these Sundays is the questions that God has for us, because for these, if we can answer them in the right way, and very often what his questions are trying to do is to get us off of some place where we're stuck and onto the right thing, as we'll see today, if we can hear those questions from the Lord, then we can really move into the life that he has for us. So we've got another question from the Lord today that's going to be in Genesis 3 that we'll see down the road. But before we get to the Lord's question for us, I have a question for you to just get you thinking in these terms. And that's this. If, um, sorry, I lost my thing here for a second. Okay. Now we're back. So here's a question for you. If you could have a superpower what would your superpower be? If you could have a superpower, what would your superpower be? Now, how many of you guys, as soon as I ask that question, you, you have an answer? And some of you, you'd want to think about it for a while. Some of you maybe have not thought about it a whole lot. But I got the idea for this from a, a podcast, This American Life. And um, the guy that was talking about this particular issue is um, John Hodgman whom you may have seen, he was on Stephen Colbert's show, if you're an old person who remembers things. He was PC in the Mac versus PC commercials that Apple did for a long time. He's a great guy. He's super thoughtful. And, and so in this podcast, he was saying that going to parties and dinners and stuff like that, he got tired of just asking people, so what do you do? How do you feel about the president? How about that weather? You know, what do you do in summer? And he started asking people, <laughs> excuse me, If you could have a superpower, what would it be? And he found it was helpful, and and so I'll narrow it down for you guys, too. He narrowed it down to two superpowers. One was flight, and the other one was invisibility. And so that's what Hodgman does. He goes to places and he asks people, "If if you could choose between two superpowers, would you choose between flight or invisibility? So, if we just narrow it down to that, how many of you guys know which one you would pick? Okay. Good, good. Now, some of you guys that haven't picked yet, you're probably thinking, I need to know more before I decide. Like, do I have any other superpowers? If I can fly, what else can I do? And the ground rules are, that you have only that superpower and no one else has it. So if you fly, you don't have super strength. If you have invisibility, you don't have the ability to withstand fire or something like that or have fire come out of your hands or anything like that. That's your only, that's your only those are your only two things. And then there's some other ones like, well, how fast can I fly? And so, so Hodgman would make it, you can fly a thousand miles an hour. And then the people who were thinking about invisibility, the sticking point for them was, do I have to take off my clothes before I become invisible? Because, you know, I mean, if you're, you have clothes on and you're invisible, they're still going to see your clothes. So he made the rule that any clothes that you're wearing, they become invisible too. But if you pick something up, they can see it. So if I, if I tried to pick up this, this legal pad and I was invisible, you would see a legal pad floating in the air, but you wouldn't see me. Okay, so those, those are the rules along the way. Um, and then as the conversation went along, Hodgman found that people wanted to know, start talking less about the rules and what it was for. And so he would ask people, it's like, what would you use this superpower for, was his, was his question. And he said the amazing thing was is almost no one used it for crime-fighting which he thought that was kind of weird because, you know, that's what superheroes do. They fight crime. But then as one guy explained it to him, he says, look, this is the only, su- this is the only power I have, right, is flight. So let's say I fly to somewhere where a crime is taking place. What am I going to do? I can't stop a crime by flying. If I try to fight them, they'll beat me up just like they will any other time. You know, I can say stop that crime or I will fly or I will turn invisible. That's not going to work. So the people that thought about this realized that their superpower wasn't going to help them a whole lot with crime fighting. And then people started moving into kind of scuzzy sorts of things with their superpower. They would use invisibility to do this or flight to do this along the way. And then Hodgman, at the end of this, makes a really great um, observation. He could really see that the people that wanted to fly and again, this isn't everybody, but this was the trend, were generally people that were kind of okay with themselves. That flight sort of represented people who wanted that extra power to be who they wanted to be. And the people who wanted invisibility, it was interesting, he thought was more based on what they feared that they were. So let me ask you this question. What motivates you more right now? Is it the desire to be who you want to be and who you would wish to be? Or is it the fear that someone will find out that you're exactly who you are? I think each of us live our lives sort of along those two poles. And the question that God has for us today is going to really help unpack that. Are we going to really live our lives in a direction with God's power and with God's help to who we want to be and who God wants us to be, or are we going to be limited by the fear of who we are and the fear of being found out for who we are? So the question that the Lord asks comes from the story in Genesis 2 and 3, and this is the story of the creation. Um, Luckily for us, we have some illustrations to help us along with the process. I don't actually do these when I use these. Somebody thought I was actually, I have zillions of Legos and I actually do these. There's a website called the Brick Testament that I get these from. And uh, we paid them, so we're not stealing them um, along the way. The other images were stolen. The John Hodgman thing is probably copyrighted and I should have paid somebody. But I paid these guys. So as Genesis 2 opens, if you're familiar with the story, this is the second of two creation stories. And in the first one, we've already... And you're thinking, what, two creation stories? Yeah, the Bible does this. Almost every place in the Bible where there's something important that's covered, it's covered more than once from more than one point of view. So creation is told, the story of creation is told twice. The rise of Israel's monarchy um, is told twice. That's why if you've ever read through the Bible and you read Samuel and Kings and you get to Chronicles, it's like, man, I just read this. Yeah, you did. It's the same story a second time from a different point of view. Jesus, the story of Jesus is told from four different angles, four different Gospels. So we get this over and over again. The, the important parts of the Bible are told from more than one point of view. So we already had Genesis 1, which in a poetic way describes how God has made the world, and there's this refrain all throughout Genesis 1, that the world is good, it's good, it's good. And you get this picture of everything fitting together, that there's not chaos, there's not trouble, that the world is, is good because everything fits and because God made it that way that fish were made for the sea and birds were made for the air humanity men and women together we were made for god and it's a great picture and then in genesis 2 and 3 the story starts over again and so it starts with the earth just exists there's no plants on it there's no people on it it's just the earth and then out of that earth the lord decides to make the first man and so he makes him out of the soil of the earth now if you were at our wild ride thing on Thursday night, one of the things we talked about is that, is that the way the Lord tells, or the Lord inspired the biblical writers to write these stories, they sort of are similar to other creation stories that Israel's neighbors had. So, in the Babylonian, they were their neighbors to the east. In the Babylonian creation story, the earth is bad, and it's made out of bad stuff. In fact, it's literally made out of the body of a bad god. A good God got in a fight with a bad God and made the world that we know of out of the body of a bad God. And what those stories are wrestling with is trying to figure out why is there evil in the world? Why is there bad in the world? And and the Babylonian story, is is their answer was to say, well, because it's made out of bad stuff. And what the Lord wanted Israel to know, the truth, is that actually the earth is made out of good stuff. It was made by the Lord himself, and it's good. And the man is made out of that soil. And in the Babylonian story, he's made out of soil, and then they take the blood of a bad God and mix it with the soil, and that's what makes the first human. And so people are bad. People struggle. The problem of evil is there because we are literally bad. We're made from bad stuff. And, you know, we might think, gosh, that's kind of silly, but not so much. Haven't we all at least chewed on that idea that I do bad things, not because I do bad things, but because there's something wrong with me, because I am bad? That idea that there is something that we are made out of bad stuff, I think resonates with us in a really deep place. And so that's, I think, why people, when they were just figuring it out on their own, that's what they concluded and they created these stories. But God led Israel and and led the Bible, the reader or the writers of the Bible, to come up with the true story. And that is, not that we are made out of bad stuff, but the Lord made us out of made the first human out of good soil. And then it says, He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And so what that story wants us to know is that we are good. We are made out of good stuff. And that stuff has been made alive. By the very breath of God. That we have God's breath within us, and that that's why we are alive, and that that's why we are good. And we are good, good, good. We are not, and when we do bad, we are a good person who's doing a bad thing, not because we are bad. So the story goes on, as you might remember. Then the Lord creates a garden and has the first man, Adam, whose name is is a pun off of earth. Um, Adam is how you say it in Hebrew. Adma is um, how you say earth in Hebrew. Um, and so the earth man or Adam tends, works in this garden, and it's a beautiful place. It's really great. The Lord puts two trees in this garden and, and t- instructs Adam and then his wife later that they're not supposed to eat from those two trees. Everything else is great, but not those two trees. And then after Adam's been alone for a while, he creates some animals and animals. Um, Adam gives them names. And then he's, the Lord realizes, you know, it's not good for him to be alone because a human being's not an animal. We're something different. And so he says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. And that language that's being used there is, is, is trying to remind us that maleness and femaleness together is essential to who we are. A lot of cultures have believed that women are somehow sort of defective men, that, that humanity is ideally male and women are sort of derivative of men. Um, a lot of ancient cultures, that's what they believe. But the Lord says, no, that's not what's true. What's true is that humanity is maleness and femaleness together. And so this story is trying in every way that it can to show us that men and women, while not identical, are of the same value and have the same role. And so what the Lord did, did next, as you might remember, to create the woman rather than going back in the dirt and creating her again, took a rib out of Adam's side and turned that rib into a woman. So again, the picture here is that she's exactly the same stuff as Adam is. So women and men are of the same stuff. We are good, and we are together, and we are the same. And um, Adam recognized this, and in the story, Adam says, yeah, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. He's so excited. There's somebody like me now. And so so that's the picture that we have. And then the, the text says an interesting thing. It says that Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That's kind of an odd point. There's a bit of TMI in that. It's like, did we really need to know that? But there's something really profound there, and it really leads to the question that the Lord has for us today. In the ancient world, nakedness was always a source of shame. You know, every culture has their ideas of, of um, what modesty is and what's appropriate. So we, you know, going to the beach, people 100 years ago would look at us at the beach and say, oh, that's terrible. You know, I mean, look at some of you women. People can see your arms today in church. My God, how could you do this? It's a horrible thing. Um, You know, modesty, there's there's a line that moves. But especially in the world of of the first audience of the Bible, having your clothes taken away was perhaps one of the most shameful things that could happen. Um, When the Romans were torturing Jesus, you might remember in the story it says they took his clothes and then they beat him. For Jesus, growing up in the world that Jesus grew up in, having his clothes taken away was worse than being beaten. So they would look at this. For them, the idea that something absolutely amazing must be going on if these people could be without clothes and feel okay. And so... I think it gets back to our question that we were talking about with the superheroes. I I think being what what Naked sort of represents here is the idea of being completely uncovered, not just being without clothes, but being without pretense, being without protection, being without the kinds of things that we carefully construct to let other people know that we're okay. You know, it's, it's being in a circumstance where they knew all about each other. They could see everything about each other. They knew everything about each other. And they weren't ashamed. How many of us today could could do that? If somebody opened up our lives completely, could we have it all out there to see and not feel at least a little embarrassed and maybe kind of ashamed? Um, I, I think that's what it's getting at, is that they were so okay at that point They knew who they were. They knew each other. They knew who they were. They knew who the Lord was. What they knew was the truth. What they knew was the truth. And they were so okay with the truth of who they were in connection to the Lord and who they were as people that they were completely unashamed, that anyone else could know everything about them. And it wasn't going to be scary. It wasn't going to be shameful. I think that's what it's getting at. So, as you know, the story goes on. That's not where it ends. Um, As the story goes along, the serpent comes up, who's described as being especially crafty, in a word that sounds almost like naked. It's really interesting, the wordplay that goes on in the passage there. There's kind of a pun happening. And he tries to mess with them. And what's interesting is the first thing that the snake does to mess with Adam and Eve is he starts to jumble up what they know to be true. And so he starts to ask them, did the Lord really say you can eat from any tree? No, 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 we can eat from any tree except for these two trees. And so he starts to try to mess with their memory. And then he tries to suggest to them, I don't think the Lord really has your best in mind. You know, the reason he told you to not eat from those two trees, the, the implication here is that, is that he doesn't want you to grow up. He doesn't want you because he knows that if you eat from those two trees, you're going to be like God's and you're going to know what he knows and you're going to see what he sees. You're going to know good and evil. Instead of of having the Lord tell you what's right, you're going to know on your own what's right and the Lord doesn't want that. And so he starts to mess with them and he starts to mess with both their memories and their understanding of the truth and he starts to mess with them with their sense of, you know, no one likes being told what to do, right? Yeah, he can't tell me what to do. And then finally, he points out to them, he says, and, and, and look, it looks really good, doesn't it? Look at that fruit. And the text says they saw that it was good for eating, and it was pleasant to the eye. And then they ate it. First Eve and then Adam, and they were both there together doing it completely together. And then the moment they ate it, they knew something had gone wrong. Something had broken. Something wasn't the right way. Now, there's a lot of things that they could have, they could have come to with that. They, they could have felt shame. They could have been angry at each other. They could have been frightened of the Lord. They could have got the snake and hit the snake and been, been angry at the snake. But they don't do any of that. What the text says is that their eyes were both open, and they realized that they were naked. So again, I I think this is about way more than just they realized they weren't wearing any clothes. It's about that deeper sense of nakedness, that sense of I'm revealed. And that their sense of who they were and who God was had just been jumbled up. And they get really troubled by this. They realize that they're naked. And so what they do next is they go take fig leaves and they sew them together and make clothes out of them. Fig Fig trees, the, the fig trees that are indigenous to that part of the world have really big leaves. And so that was their best option to try to cover up. So as they're covered up, the Lord shows up in the story again. And in this story, you know, the Lord would walk with them at the end of the day. The, their connection to God was that close that they would meet face to face with the Lord at the end of the day and they'd, they'd hang out. Um, and the Bible looks forward to this again. In the Book of Revelation, it talks about how, instead of us being sucked into heaven, that the Lord's city is going to descend here to earth, and we're all going to live together once again, face to face in the Lord's presence. So this is not crazy stuff. This is not a made-up story. This is this is how it was. And so the Lord would meet and hang out with Adam and Eve, and even Adam every every evening. But this night he shows up and he can't find them because they're hiding. They hear him coming, and they hide. And he asks them, why are you hiding? And they, they explain, you know, we, we ate, and we knew we were naked, and so that's why we're hiding. Now, think about what the Lord could have said next. He could have said, why did you eat from the tree? Why are you hiding? Why did you listen to the snake? Any number of things. But what he says next is really interesting. He says, who told you you were naked? Who told you? Told is the key word here. Who told you you were naked? And that's today's question. Who told you you were naked? Or I think for our purposes, it's going to be helpful to just cut it off at the beginning and say, who told you? Because here's the deal, there was nothing wrong with them being naked before they ate from the fruit. They were fine with each other. They were fine with the Lord being in the Lord's presence. They didn't have to hide. No, there was something that went wrong after they sinned, after they did not listen to the Lord and they sinned. And I think that in their response in the Lord's question is a really great description of what happens and how sin messes us up you know we think of sin as as doing a whole lot of things but what perhaps the most insidious thing that it does for us when that when we fail God we fail ourselves we fail each other that when that happens what it does is it jumbles up how we understand how the world works it makes us believe things that aren't true and it makes us forget what we know to be true it makes us believe things about ourselves that are not how God made us and it makes us forget things about ourselves and about God that are absolutely essential to the good life that God wants us to have. See, what happens is, and this is why they're hiding, is that while they knew they had done wrong, what they had concluded from this was that there was something wrong with them. Do you see that distinction? We just saw at the beginning, people are made out of good stuff, that we are good. We have the very breath of God inside of us. You and me and every person in this room is good in our greatest essence. Now, we can do bad and we can do horrible things, but that's who we are. We are good people who have done bad things. But Adam and Eve at this point, they don't believe that anymore. They think that there's something wrong with them. And their only response is to hide in shame. It's not that they've done wrong, it's that they are wrong. And so they hide, and sin begins to work its way out. So sin is a lot of things, but believing the wrong story, forgetting the truth, and buying the lie is a fundamental part of what sin does. And every time we commit a sin, we become more and more likely to believe the lie and forget the truth, to begin to think that I do bad things because I am bad, that it's sort of inevitable. And have you ever had that where you're struggling with something? It's it's especially for those persistent things that you struggle with. And when you finally give into it, you have that sense of, well, that was just going to happen anyway. You know, you feel like, we we feel like we're the scorpion on the head of that uh, turtle in that story along the way. Um, We feel that that's just who we are. And what I want to say to you today, and what the Lord wants to say to you, and what he said to Adam and Eve is, who told you that? Who told you that it was inevitable that you were going to do bad things? Who told you that you were going to fail at that? Who told you that, oh, yeah, they, they might make it, but you, you're never going to make it? Who told you that? That's not true. That's not, who, that's not who you are. That's not how the God made you. Yeah, maybe you've messed up. Maybe you've failed. Maybe you've done really bad things. But that's what, you're not a bad thing. You're a good person who's done bad things. And if you begin to believe that the problem is you and not what you do, who told you that? Who told you that? it's not you, that's not true, and that's not right. So, how do we find ourselves out of this? How do we get out of this? Well, the Lord has done some really good things, and it's basically that we need to get rid of the false stories and the false things that we believe about ourselves and about God and remind ourselves over and over again of what is true. So, if Adam and Eve got into this problem by not listening to what the Lord said, The way we get ourselves out is by listening to what the Lord says. This is one of those great situations where the way into the trouble is also the way out. Now, this is not every circumstance, every situation with the way in is not necessarily the way out, and and you'll see that along the way sometimes with people. But in this case, if we get into this problem by listening, we get out of this problem by listening. Instead of listening to what the world tells us and what other people tell us and that, and that dark part of our heart that, that tells us that we're not worthy, that tells us that, yeah, you are the kind of person who does this sort of thing. Of course you were going to do that. You knew you were going to fail. Come on. You can fake people out, but you can't fake yourself out. That voice that makes us hide, ashamed, because we don't want a people to see us, that our worst fear would be ever to be to have people see us actually as we are, Those are all lies. And what the Lord wants to say to you today is, who told you that? That's not true. But just as false words can get us into it, true words can get us out. And and this may sound simplistic. This may sound like, oh, you just say nice words and it's going to fit. But words have power, not magic power, but stories and words have power. They shape our expectations. They shape our sense of what's possible. They shape our beliefs. And knowing what is true about you and how the Lord actually feels about you and not what we project onto him, but to allow your creator to tell you what's true about you rather than project back onto him our own creations of what we think he's supposed to be, that's where the life is and that's where the power is. And so it really is a matter, the way forward from this is to focus on both what we hear and what we say to one another. So again, it's about focusing on who we want to be. Do we want to partner with the Lord to enable us to be who we want to be? Or do we want to just stay focused on what we fear we are and fear what others would see in us? So again, what do you hear and what do you say? So here's a few places where the Lord expresses himself to his people that we need to hear. This is true stuff, okay? This is absolute truth, and these, this needs to be the truth that you embrace and the other stories that you need to let go. So here's one in Exodus 19. Um, I come back to this a lot because it's true, just like I tend to come back to forks when I'm eating because it works really well for that purpose. This is really foundational to knowing who you are in relationship to the Lord, okay? This is the Lord. So after things break with Adam and Eve, there's this long period where God chooses individual people, then he creates a people, then they become slaves in Egypt, and then he saves them from being slaves in Egypt, and then he brings them out to Mount Sinai, and it's like, okay, I did all of this, now let me tell you what I did all of this for. Let me tell you who you are and who I want to be to you. And hear this from the Lord today. This is who he wants to be for you as well. He says this he says you've seen what i did to egypt and how i carried on eagles wings and brought you to myself and if you want to if you want to um substitute what i did through jesus on the cross that works too that at great cost the lord has saved us and why did he save us to bring us to himself he wants to know us and be known by god He wants to start working back to that experience that Adam and Eve had where they would meet with the Lord and just hang out at the end of the day, that their connection would be that good and that great, that that's what it was like. So I did this to bring you to myself. And how does the Lord feel about us? He says this. He says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, basically, if you'll just listen to me, you got into this problem by listening to the wrong things. Now, if you'll just listen to the right things, he says... Out of all the nations, I've got my choice of everyone and everything, but I pick you. I pick you, and you will be my treasured possession. I don't know if we use that phrase, treasured possession, but whatever is of most importance to you, that's who you are. Somebody I heard once said, if your house was burning, what's the one thing that you would go back in to get? That's your treasured possession. And what the Lord is saying is, that's you. That's me. That is each of us here. So, no matter what you believe about yourself or what your own story tells you who you are, guys, this is who you are. This is who we are. We are the Lord's treasured possessions. We were made by him and we were made good. We have the very breath of God within us and no matter how many bad things we've done and how many times we have failed ourselves or the Lord or others, we are his treasured possessions. See, the Lord, what he focuses on it's not just our performance. And our performance matters a lot. The Lord cares a great deal that when we fail. When we hurt others, when we hurt ourselves, the Lord is grieved by that. He is desperate to get us out of that process. And, but he's focused on our worth and not on our performance. In fact, he has to make that point later on in Deuteronomy. After the Israelites know that they've been picked... There's a tendency, anytime somebody picks you, you say, hey, man, I must have something going on. I, there, obviously, I was picked and this person wasn't, so there must be something about me that makes me that much more valuable. And he says, no, no, don't, don't get this. As he's going over it a second time in Deuteronomy with his people, as they're about to enter the Promised Land, he says, Moses is telling them this, he says, look, the Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because, chose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for actually you were the fewest of peoples. And I have those two words highlighted because... I'm not sure that that's the best translation. Those words have more to do with quality rather than number. So it's not that, it's not because the Lord thought that you were the best people and that's why he picked you. He says, actually, guys, if you want to get into this, you weren't all that pickable in terms of the outward stuff. Um, no, it's because you're the least. But, but here's what makes us lovable. The Lord says this. He says, But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out, that he saved you with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of the Pharaoh of Egypt. So it's not because the Lord looks down at us and says, okay, there's 12 people over here that have done well enough this week. I'm going to save them from Egypt. I'm going to save them from their troubles. I'm going to save them from their own bad decisions. I'm going to save them from the bad stuff other people's done to them. It's not that they've earned it. It's not that they're up to it in any, any kind of sense. No, it's because it, God has made the first choice to love us, love us as good, created good people, that he saves us. That's why he saves us. Another way to put this, that I think might help you get a hold of this is that we don't make the Lord love us. Our behavior, our lovability, doesn't make the Lord love us. But in fact, it's the Lord's love that makes us. Do you see that? It is the Lord's love that makes us. It was in love that we were created. It's in love that we're sustained. It's in love that the Lord comes alongside of us to celebrate when we can bless others and work with us when we failed but we do not make the Lord love us. That's a lie. And if you believe that, who told you that? If you think that God's love is conditioned on something along the way, what the Lord wants to say to you today is, who told you that? If you think that the stuff that you've done is bad enough and is piled up enough that you are no longer lovable by God, who told you that? It's not true. Why are you hiding behind your sins and and using our sins essentially as fig leaves and jungle foliage to hide from the God who wants to be there with us? You know, the thing is, is that life is going to tell us many things, and many of them are false. Common sense about who you are will often lead you astray. We need to hear the Lord's voice to tell us what is really true, what is really real, about who we are. So, hear that. And if you believe anything else, just ask yourself, who told you that? And in fact, I invite you to do that. As each discouraging thought, as each time you're tempted to own the sense that there is something wrong with you, that you're ineligible for God's best, that you've failed deeply enough, that you're beyond that, at least that part of your life is beyond recovery, just continue to ask yourself, who told you that? Who told you that? That's not true. That's not real. That's not right. That's not who you are. And here's one other thing that we can do for each other. It's astounding to me how simple this is. But there is something super powerful about just small words of encouragement, small words of blessing that we can give to each other. There is something that's beyond measure that if later today somebody just says something to me that is encouraging, that helps me, reminds me of my value of who I am in God, it makes it so much easier for me to believe what the Lord wants to say. It's just programmed into us. And so what that means is, is that each of us has the ability with just a few words to help somebody else that much closer to being whom God wants them to be, away from the lies, away from the falsehoods, and away into the truth of who we are in God. Two examples from the Proverbs: One, anxiety wears, weighs down the heart. This is true, right? If any of us experience anxiety, it does. It just, it, it, it literally does. And the heart in, in the Hebrew Bible, the heart is where you make your decisions. Anxiety literally makes you stupid. You can't make good decisions when you are anxious. The part of your brain that's your decision maker, where you want to do your best thinking, it just doesn't happen when you're anxious. So this this is truth. And you know what fixes it? You know, instead of just saying, hey, stop being anxious. No, that doesn't do it. That's not the second line of that. Notice what the second line is. But a kind word cheers it up. Now, this is almost like something that you find on a coffee cup and you're like ah, you know whatever this is just nice sentimental stuff no this is real and there's something that is built hardwired into us that we respond to words we respond to stories the wrong stories and the wrong sto- and the wrong words will drag us down the right stories and the right words will build us up and each of us has that capacity just a little bit of kindness when someone is facing anxiety puts them on the road to being the person that god wants them to be It's just astounding. But you can do this, okay? You don't don't need superpowers to do this one. In fact, this is like a superpower. You have the ability to actually change somebody's heart with just a kind word. Isn't that amazing? I mean, because you could fly to them, but they're still going to be anxious, right? Or you could be invisible, and they say, wow, that's invisible, but I'm still really worried about next week. Or it's amazing that you're invisible, but I'm still worried about next week. But you can actually change somebody's heart with just a kind word. Another one. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. To the bones! Have you ever been that anxious or that sad where you can literally feel it in your bones? It's, it's, a, it's a good phrase. And you can bring healing to that with just a few words. Just a few words. Greater than any possible Superpower. So what the Lord wants us to do is to tell each other what's really true. And here's what's true. That you are loved, that you are valued, that's a typo, and that you are worthy. You put all this together, that you're good. If you've done bad things, deal with it. Deal with it with the Lord but that you are loved by God, that you are valued by God, that you are worthy of the Lord's attention. So, Ajwa comes forward. I want to invite you to think really specifically in two ways. Where's one place where you just know you're believing something that's false? You've allowed that false narrative that there's something wrong with you to seep into your life, that it's inevitable that you're going to fail that way, that that's just who you are. Identify that and ask yourself, who told me that? It's not true. And work with the Lord to set that aside. And then also, just very specifically, think of who you can speak to. Think of who you can talk to. And with just a small amount of kindness, with just the right words, get their heart going on the right place.